The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Was America right to abandon Afghanistan to its fate? And what role will China play now? That's what Pete Sweeney and I will be discussing in our first segment on the Views Room this week. Following that, we'll tackle the seismic shifts BHP is experiencing under Chief Executive Mike Henry's leadership. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry, one of the editors of Breaking Views, coming to you from Down Under in Melbourne. We'll return here later in the program to dig into the latest happenings at mining giant BHP, the city's and country's largest company by market value. First, though, let's turn to Afghanistan. The country is back under the control of the Taliban almost 20 years after the United States invaded and removed them from power. Their return has been swift, exposing poor US intelligence in the short term, and in the longer term, America's failed two-decade attempt at nation-building that cost at least $2 trillion and more than 250,000 lives. Fears now grow for human rights inside the country, not least for women who weren't even allowed to be in public without a male chaperone under Taliban rule, let alone get an education or have a career. And the events of recent days have raised many other questions, including, from our perspective, about America's choices and whether China now gets involved in the country as well. Joining me to discuss this is Pete Sweeney up in Hong Kong. Afternoon, Pete. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, sir? Good, thanks. Good, despite the news, of course, we're seeing. Mm. So, look, um, obviously, I mentioned there the, 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 the human toll there and also the financial toll. But if, we, if we're to look at this, if we take a step back, Let's think about what America did. And obviously, we're, we're channeling here to an extent one of our colleagues in America, Richard Beals, who's written about this as well as you have this week. So what does this say about America's leadership? What does it say about you know whether America, from a financial, political, moral perspective, whatever, should have stayed or gone? What, what's our thinking on this? Well, I don't think either I or Richard believe or anybody really that I've met that I find credible thinks that there was a viable long term strategy for the United States to stay in Afghanistan, you know, the original mission was supposed to be narrow, targeting you know, Al-Qaeda that had mounted attacks on the United States when the September 11th attacks and destroying kind of the nest that it had built in the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan at the time. That was 20 years ago. There was also the fact that Osama bin Laden, one of the architects of the attack, was still at large, but they got to him during the Obama administration. Since then, I think it's mostly been a question not of whether, but how to draw down the investment. The idea being that uh, you were going to build a stable Afghan state that could defend itself and deliver a better version of democracy and, and development you know, for the Afghan people with American support. Clearly, that vision was at odds with the realities of Afghanistan and the limitations on the ability of the United States to deliver that sort of outcome to a foreign society, you know, one riven by tribal divisions where the Taliban never quite exited. And also the fact that Afghanistan is surrounded by different countries that have their own interests that are in many ways inimical to the interests of the United States. And they've all got different interests in what kind they want Afghanistan to be. So there's no doubt that there was the need for the U.S. to leave. And the hope was that it would go much better than it did. So the extent to which people are, are apportioning blame, it's largely focused on the incredible overestimation of the development of the Afghan state, which completely faded away. And it's, you know, it's really similar to what happened in Vietnam, but albeit at, at much faster pace. Um, the indeed, United States indeed. never built yeah. a, a government that was viable. And I mean, you know, so you cut your losses. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, isn't it? In fact, if I, if I look back, I mean, just a month ago, former President 
Donald Trump was trying to claim credit for starting the process in this last year, even saying, no, there's no way of turning back now, we're coming out. And as you said, even before that, Obama certainly considered how to get out of the country. And then there was this this incredible series of reporting from the Washington Post a couple of years ago that I completely forgotten about until a couple of days ago, where they got hold of four or five hundred different interviews that a government agency in the US had done, which basically outlined just how there really wasn't much of a strategy from very early on in Afghanistan and how most of the military and political leaders and those associated with them were just aghast at how little was being done. So it all sort of fits together, doesn't it, into this America shouldn't have been there that long and, and its allies shouldn't have been there that long. Pulling out was probably the right thing to do. Afghanistan's government that it was upholding wasn't strong enough. And so now we're kind of shocked. The, the, I suppose the big shock is it it, clo- it, it, it collapsed as quickly. Is there a fear on the financial side, though, that I mean, I mean, I don't know how you'd even work this out. Two trillion dollars was spent minimum, at least on this over the years. Arguably to keep. Yeah, that's excluding Iraq. I mean, Richard Beale says five trillion if you include Iraq and Syria, which I think is fair. For me, the question is really, you know, whether there will be who will be bearing the cost of an unstable or Taliban dominated um, Afghanistan going forward. This is where the China question comes in, right? So 20 years ago, you know, China had barely any interest in Afghanistan other than not having um, militants coming across the border. You know, now under Xi Jinping, it has presented itself as, as a regional player. Um, it has adjusted its non-interference st- strategy. It's developed a military that's capable of projecting power as a military base in, in, in Africa. And it's also built this huge infrastructure initiative across, the, uh, across Central Asia, which is an, an attempt to, to hedge its, its dependence on, on on shipping lanes, which are dominated by the U.S. Navy, right? So they want right. land routes to Iran to, to energy markets in in um, the Middle East, and also trade routes directly into markets in Eastern in Europe. So there is now this huge Chinese investment, both in its stature in Central Asia, where it's taken over these kind of uh, these regional platforms, uh, the the Shanghai Cooperative Organization. There's another one called CICA, CICA, which is a very long acronym, <laughs> repeat, right. um, but run out of Kazakhstan. And, and, and it's, it's now it's no longer kind of it is now going to be in focus because if Afghanistan returns to chaos, you know, it's a problem for everybody, including China. And China has kind of put itself on the hook of like, we're, we're going to be we want, you know, Asians to be in charge of Asian security, not the United States. OK, right. so now, like, you know, they got this free ride on the, the stability or to whatever degree of stability it was that the U.S. troop presence delivered, and now that's gone, um, and they're going to have to open up negotiations with the regime. You know, even as they're heavily suppressing their their Muslim minorities at home in the name of counterterrorism and anti-radicalism, but I mean they're dealing with a radical Islamic state. So that's going to be quite interesting to see how they pull right. that off. I mean, that that's. I mean, so what's really happening is that the fact that Afghanistan can now. Under the Taliban, it now has the ability to look outward again, rather than being almost completely focused internally. I suppose with the Taliban thinking the Americans are here, we need them gone, and the Americans thinking we need we need our government here to to be able to project power, and it can't. As you said, China has used that distraction to build itself up, and now you know if you're Afghan, if you're the Taliban, you you probably would look across the board and think, what can we get from them, but also what do we think of them? Yeah, well, and it's 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 important to note that the Taliban, that this state is not a developmental, you know, materialistic state. The dream of the Taliban for Afghanistan is not like the Chinese dream where everybody has cars and material goods. This is a spiritual agenda. So there's this fundamental incompatibility 
between, you know, kind of the, the goals that, that China and Xi Jinping are advocating in terms of economic development and the vision the Taliban has for, for the, the life hereafter. So that's incompatible. That said, they have to do business. I mean, the Taliban does want to stay in power. They do need infrastructure and investment, if nothing else, than to, to make sure they can control the country, which they didn't do very well last time. So they know they need China, and China has some requirements that they not meddle. For example, a lot, a lot of the people that, that China is busy locking up in these de-radicalization camps are Uyghur Muslims. Um, right. There are Uyghurs in the Taliban. There have been violent terrorist attacks on Chinese nationals in Pakistan. Um, I believe there was one in Kyrgyzstan as well. You know, so there and, and there's there's Chinese workers and people and infrastructure all around Afghanistan. The, the positive outcome for China is the Taliban takes control and stabilizes the country under, albeit, you know, a not particularly exciting economic opportunity, but it's just not going to be a problem. And then, you know, that all these gas line routes, these pipelines, these highways and railways are, are safe. You know, you could do some limited things there and it's it's just a, not an issue. The, the risk is that the Taliban does not control, cannot keep control of its rank and file, the radicals, that attacks increase, that instability increases. And having presented itself as this kind of big player in the security route, it will now have to kind of put its money where its mouth is, which might even include some form of, of military involvement along its borders, which is very much not what China wants. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, I suppose the last thing China wants to be is the the third very big state to be going in there in, what, 50 years? By and, no means. And yeah. this is, yeah, no, and this is incredibly unpopular. Like, Chinese people are already worried about this. Like, why are we meeting? You know, Wang Yi, the top diplomat, has already met with the Taliban leadership. You know, they've already had these conversations, and that is already bothering some Chinese people that they're interacting. They are quite worried about it. There, there's just one other, I mean, we'll see how it goes. There's, there's one other China angle that is more related to the United States, though, and this is a potential cost. Um, that I don't believe um, the Americans may have factored in. Um, of course, it's hypothetical. But the question is in Taiwan about Taiwan. So one, one of the, the questions is to what extent the Asia concludes that America's security commitment, its ability to kind of deliver security in the Asia region has been weakened. And certainly the spectacle in Kabul sort of reinforces those in China who are saying, you know, look, these guys these guys are not going to, they're not going to defend Taiwan. They're not going to defend Japan. They're, they're has-beens and they're on the way out. And that's potentially a risk because obviously it would be extremely expensive for the United States to have to actually engage in combat with China, which is a nuclear armed state with a massive military. But if this move convinces China that like the United States won't fight, then all that expensive deterrent we have sailing around in the Pacific yeah becomes very heavily discounted. So that is the other real risk. I mean, I think that's an extreme take. I don't think China or anybody expected, you know, equates Afghanistan with Taiwan. But it's quite interesting that the Taiwanese premier came out and took the trouble of saying that, like, oh, by the way, we are not going to collapse like Afghanistan uh, yes. you know, if China invades. I mean, he went out of his way to say this. So that I thought that was fairly, fairly telling and kind of highlights, assuming that it doesn't get tied up in Afghanistan, um, China might well look at this as clearing its way to push harder against Taipei at America. Yeah, that's a, that's yeah, that's I mean that's that's a big bet to make considering America's longer term commitment to the region and where its forces lie. But you know you're, you're right. That's that's certainly and given what what uh, Taipei uh, Taipei has been talking about, that certainly seems to be 
the fear on some sides and, and even the opportunity on, on the Chinese side. Well, look, uh, thanks for talking us through that, Pete. Um, depressing news, but uh, but thanks for giving us such clarity on what's going on. So let's uh, move on from the sad story of Afghanistan. Now um, we're staying purely down under, or just about down under for the next segment. I'm joined by uh, my fellow Melbourne-based colleague, Jeff Goldfarb. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. So look, we should also say um, we are going to be channeling our London colleague, on this as well. George Hay, who's been writing a lot about miners over the years and including about uh, some of what we're talking about today. But unfortunately, it's just the two of us. So we're going to have to pretend that uh, that we're him as well. So, Jeff, Mike Henry is the CEO of BHP. He has been in the seat for, what, 18 months, give or take. And this week finally seems to have put his full stamp on the company. Just run us through quickly the things he's he's all of a sudden foisted on his shareholders. Yeah, pretty seismic shifts at uh, at BHP, and and funny coming from Mike Henry, who is by all accounts, uh, you know, and uh, having chatted to him, he's very mild mannered. He's very sort of easygoing, and I don't think like this kind of these kinds of ructions were necessarily what might have been anticipated out of Mike. But um, so he announced three really big things along with the annual results this week. One is that uh, BHP is going to sell out of fossil fuels, the petroleum right. business, uh, oil and gas that they've got uh, in, a, in a merger with Woodside Petroleum. They've committed a big chunk of money to kind of uh, to invest in a, in a potash project in Canada. And then they're also going to collapse the, this dual listed uh, structure that they've had for uh, two decades, ever since uh, BHP and Billiton merged where they've got, uh, they basically got a, a dual listing in the UK and in Australia that has sort of uh, really uh, gone past its shelf life. And anyway, these three things combined really are Mike Henry putting his real stamp on the company. I mean, it is amazing. I'd, I'd want to say it's, it's almost like a CEO emerging from COVID deciding to, you know, finally, he's been chomping at the bit and wants to get something done. But of course, we are back in lockdown down here with a with an overnight curfew to boot for a couple of weeks. So maybe it's not that. But I mean, th- these are things that, that shareholders have been, or various groups of shareholders, should we say, have been pushing for on and off for a while. Certainly the delisting uh, and even the sort of more of a sense of what they're doing with potash, right? Yeah, so the potash decision has been kicking around for a while. You know, this was a decision about whether or not to kind of, they had already gone down this road of working on something. And then for a while now, they've been talking about, well, do, you know, they figured out, all right, it's going to cost almost $6 billion to kind of really get this phase of the project done. And they've really been deliberating over what to do with it. And, you know, as time has gone on, there's been this sense that that Henry was going to proceed with this. Now, what it dovetails with in a big way is this this sale of the petroleum business. It's sort of like moving out of the old and into the new uh, is is kind of the real real message, I think, that that Mike Henry's trying to deliver here. I mean, he has couched the whole thing in this is where the value is and selling oil and gas is really we're creating value for Cheryl. But the truth of the matter is that this is about like moving from the from the from BHP's past over 50 years of having oil and gas mixed in with the, right. the minerals business and looking ahead to what are the minerals, what are the what are the mega trends, I guess, to use kind of like the the, the buzzword, uh, you know, of the future. And that's electrification. And that's sort of feeding the world. And potash feeds very much into that theme. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, well, you're right. Certainly, they've been in oil and gas for that long. Also, let's not forget um, that the other assets they're trying to get rid of, or he's trying to get rid of, uh, some of their coal assets. Certainly, the the, the so-called thermal coal, which is mostly a coal mine, some coal mines down here in Australia. They're keeping, I think, metallurgical coal, which is used in steelmaking. They haven't sold them yet. They're 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 on the on the block. And of course, before he was CEO, they also spun out some businesses which included some fossil fuels. Uh, South 32, it's called now, right? So um, yeah, and that's yeah, that's exactly why. I mean, that that's the sale of that business a few years ago is part of the reason why collapsing the share structure makes so much sense today because that business was in the British business. Now that the British business is so small. Yeah. Um, more than 95% of operating profit comes out of the Australian parent. Um, so anyway, that's, that's uh, kind of yeah. feeds into that idea too. So I mean, we'll get a bit more to the, what the getting rid of the listing might mean in in the future. Let's just look at the, the fossil fuels part of it for now. Obviously, as you said, this is you know a, a desire to sort of push uh, forward into uh, the sort of electrification of the future. But also, I mean, there is a, a case for, you know, shareholders having said, look, we don't see the reason for you to be in fossil fuels, considering it's a relatively small part of your business. I think you know, coal is, de- is almost de minimis, whereas the oil and gas business is, what, 10% of EBITDA, I think I saw? Right, yeah, somewhere around that. Yeah, I mean, look, the interesting thing here is that, the, you know, Henry has been, over the last 18 months, talked up that petroleum business, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he sees it at, you know, he, he sees it as a growth business. In fact, PHP was ready to spend like something around a third of its CapEx into that business over the next few years. So this was something that they were looking at as as a growth business. And I think he, to a certain extent, he still sees it as a growth business in the sense that through the energy transition, and you know more about this even than I do, Anthony, but through the energy transition cycle that we're going through right now, there is going to be demand for oil and gas, even though the world is trying to wean itself off of it. But there was, as you say, there was pressure undoubtedly from more environmental and socially conscious investors. Interestingly enough, a lot of those, more of those were in the UK than they are in Australia. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, look, Henry is making the point that, look, we did not do this because, you know, explicitly because of climate change and, and that sort of thing. But it's hard not to think that it was it was a factor especially given how much he's talked up this business. And yes, I, you know, he can say, look, we got a good deal for it. Either, you know, our shareholders can hang on to this business once we give them the shares in this bigger combined company where all this value is going to be extracted through cost savings. But at the end of the day, he is getting rid of this thing that has drawn a lot of attention. And environmentally conscious investors may now say, okay, we, we can give BHP a little bit more of a think uh, yeah. than we would have done before. Yeah, because I think you know if, if this is a, I mean, certainly we can make an argument, and we we certainly made it on on the on their coal assets that maybe these are the kind of assets that um, a company should keep. Certainly, a, a company with enough wherewithal to do so should keep and run down responsibly. Certainly, on coal, Glencore is talking along those lines. Whether or not you believe them is another matter, but that's that's how they're pitching it. Um, on the other hand, of course, if it's not a business that is core to what you're doing, and at ten percent, it clearly isn't. Although the growth was good. There's a lot to be said for getting rid of it so that you can concentrate on 
um, future businesses that fit more with the energy transition and not be hampered by having those assets that you don't necessarily need to fund the growth because you can look at some of the the fossil fuel companies and say okay you, you kind of need those those old assets to fund your growth it's a bit like car companies you need those suvs if you're gm to be able to finance your growth into electrification and autonomous vehicles but bhp doesn't really need that so I, I can see why they want to get rid of it. So there's 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 just you don't have you have more clarity on exactly what the business structure is, um, regardless of whether you know you think climate change is an issue, which I'm, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, the only thing it does. it does is I guess Anthony is the only thing I would say is sort of like is the more skeptical part is that you know one of the things that BHP has consistently pitched is its diverse business model, right? It's like yes. when oil is up, iron ore is down, iron ore is up, whatever. You have these things to kind of hedge off of one another. I agree with you, and I, I broadly believe that like this is the better direction for BHP to be going in, given all the trends we're seeing. But when you've spent so much time talking up how great this model is, it gets a little bit hard. Like you know, you, there's that little kind of like tinge of doubt. You're like, well, why are you saying that now? All of a sudden, that's changed. But but look, he, he he's rethinking this business in in a different way. And, and appropriately so, I think. Yeah, and I think look, if we if we look at the other side of the uh, of the coin here, it does seem from talking it up, he's got what looks like a decent price for it. I mean, it's it's hard to say because of course the way the deal's being done with Woodside, of uh, another Australian listed company, is as, as I think you mentioned, there's there's they're going to be Woodside is going to be paying for it by giving new shares to BHP shareholders. So BHP is getting nothing from it, um, and as a result, they're talking about it as a net asset value. Uh, play and they're not quite telling you exactly what they're paying for the business, but you can you can sort of work it out. And it looks at comes out to roughly six times EBITDA, which is pretty good considering where most of the oil majors in the world are trading, like three to four, four and a half times at best, which actually also is where BHP trades, of course. And from Woodside's perspective, having listened to them yesterday, that. They're really loving the idea that this is a growth company and with assets that yield a lot of cash at the moment because they're stuck trying to work out what to do to pay for some of their LNG projects off the coast of Western Australia, where they were, according to analysts, looking to have to maybe raise equity to finance it or even sell some of it down. Now, this allows them to keep it, maybe even take on the whole 100%. BHP owns 26% of it. And, and away you go. It's, sort of, you know, it's, 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 like a, it's almost like it's rescuing them from making harder choices. So maybe that's what Mike Henry's got for it as well, is a, is a, is a decent price well there's also the you know there, and one other quote to that is there i mean there's the opportunity you know there you frame up two to three billion dollars of, of capex that was going to go into petroleum that can now either be used to buy other more future-facing commodities as mike henry likes to call them or pay pay more dividends you know whatever it may be they're not receiving as you say proceeds necessarily from the sale but they are freeing up some capital now, about the de- about the delisting from the UK, so you mentioned, of course, one of the issues is, you know, wh- why bother being in the UK when only what five percentage of your of your revenue probably comes from there now? But also, it, so people are telling us, it it makes it easier to do a deal using stock if you only have one listing, and I'm sure there are ways around it. But is that something you're expecting to see Mike Henry do at some point? Is to use his stock for a, a relatively sizable transaction? Is that where this company goes well, next? This is the ultimate question. The, the big trend in mining, not just at BHP, but more broadly, is the last cycle, they all overspent, right? They, mm. they went way too big, paid at the top of the market, did some silly deals, took a lot of impairments, didn't work out. So then they, they shifted into this like, well, we're not going to make that mistake again. Let's just So they've been plowing money back to shareholders, right? I mean, BHP yeah. over the last three years has 
return paid three thirty-eight billion dollars worth of dividends. I mean, it's an extraordinary amount of money, right? Yeah. But now you think, well, if they're talking up getting into these new these new fields and copper and nickel are where uh, and potash, but, but copper and nickel really where BHP wants to be. I mean, both of those minerals are like you know increasing in price and value. So getting into those businesses at a reasonable level is not going to be easy. And so I guess that's the question that you have. Yeah. You know, it's great. They're going to free up, you know, by getting rid of this dual listing. You know, you don't have two shareholder votes. You don't have like all this madness if they can get this thing through, which I think they will be able to. Um, yeah, it should allow them to use their stock for some deals. Um, and it's clear that that's what they're flagging. They're looking to, you know, they, they've made it very clear what it is they want to be moving into more of. So you can't help but think that's what we'll see. I don't think they will get crazy undisciplined, but it certainly seems like that's where the money is earmarked for now. Yeah, I mean it's 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 hard to read this into it, right? In the first day or so after the announcement, but we're looking. I'm just looking now. There's a a seven percent drop in the shares on Wednesday, the day after the announce the the big in announcement the in the Australian yeah. shares. That's yeah. right. And of course, I think as as we discussed offline, the chances are this could be um, arbitrageurs just you know, uh, having some fun with it, but it could also be linked to that. You know, will BHP now, now go out and do a deal? Because you know, we, we were when we were talking about this, but uh, thinking about this yesterday, Jeff, I remember sort of you know the three of us, you, me, and George, saying, "Well, what does this do for the valuation of the company? It's it's not okay. It's, it's more highly valued than Rio Tinto, which has had its its own issues over the past year or so. But at, at fourish times EBITDA, it's 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 not that good." A multiple compared to some of the things it's selling, like the coal business and the oil and gas business. If you look at the the standalone businesses down here in Australia, they're trading at five to six times EBITDA, which you know is is a bit of a head scratcher, right? And here we see BHB now getting dinged for seemingly doing three things that different groups of investors were pushing for. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a little bit hard to read into it today because we did see the British shares trend up because the market was open yesterday when they made that announcement. Today, the Australian shares are down. Remember, they're going to keep a listing in London, even though they're going to collapse kind of like the whole parental structure into right. Australia. They'll have ADRs in New York. They've got shares traded in South Africa. There is a huge opportunity here right now for arbitrageurs, these guys that love to kind of just play these kinds of things. So there's going to be a lot of movement in that. That said, yeah, I think there are going to be some questions about, about growth. Um, but longer term, it seems like Henry kind of has his eyes on the prize, which is the right markets for what's coming in the world. But there's going to be all sorts of movement, I think, rotation. And the other thing is, like, over time, he will attract more climate conscious investors right. um, who are, you know, who may have been hesitant to buy into the stock. Ultimately, um, there are going to be questions about growth because the price of iron ore, which has been sort of like at record, not record high prices, but very high prices in recent years, um, is now starting to come back down. You've just gotten rid of your oil business. I think there's just a lot of people just trying to figure out what to do right here. But if you're thinking, you know, middle to long term, it's hard not to evaluate. And I, I mean, one final guy, there's execution risk in all of it. Yes, of course. You know, but you have to think that, that, that BHP is heading in the right direction. If it can get it all right, not overspend, not make mistakes, get the governance right. All you know, there's a lot of ifs and ifs and buts, but um, but direction feels right. 
Absolutely. Well, look, Jeff, thanks for talking us through that. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is a 180 billion uh, US dollar company. I'm sure it's uh, it's something we're going to be monitoring as as it progresses through this transition of its own. And of course, as it tries to tra- take advantage of the broader energy transition. So look, thanks for coming on and talk- talking us through. That's our show for this week. Thanks again to Jeff and to Pete for coming on. And we extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Sharon Lamb and Katrina Hamlin. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcast kicks. And do share your opinions about our shows. Join us again next week for another edition.